Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Rest Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my friend and co-conspirator Sean, a.k.a. The Book Watcher. Hey, Sean, how are you? How about yourself? Doing good. Excellent. Good to hear. Uh, well, we have a very special guest joining us today. Um, it's hard to sort of find the correct adjectives to describe him as well. He's a true horologist with a capital H, I'd say. Uh, please welcome clockmaker and watchmaker David Walter. Hello, David. Hi, Roman. Hi, Sean. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us for a conversation. You're a fascinating man with a incredible sort of set of achievements, and we're certainly hopeful we can explore some of those today. Sure, we can do that. Now, what we used to do is we usually like to put our guests on the spot right away. <laughs> so perhaps you could tell us a little bit, start by telling us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kick off from there. Sure, why not? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, well, as you know, I was born in Perth in Western Australia, 1949, mm-hmm. which was not only last century, it was last millennium. Um, <laughs> and, and Perth was definitely stuck in last millennium. And of uh, Went to school there, uh, didn't show any particular adaptations, I don't think. When I was at school, I was better at handwork than paperwork. So my father, who was, he he, he was a saddler initially, before Mm. before the horseless carriage came in. And so he, he decided to find work for me. And doing something, and he knew one of his friends from the Depression days on the gold fields, and asked him if he'd like to take an apprentice, me. And then he, after that, he asked me, "Look, I found a job for you. Would you like to be a watchmaker?" You know, and a kid at fifteen, you say, "Oh yeah, sure, that's what I wanted to do all my life, right?" Um, <laughs> so, and I thought, well, um, I'll, I guess I'll try anything once, and why not? And so, went and had a vi- interview. Um, I'm, guessing that was maybe July or August that year because when school finished at the end of end of the year and I was to start the next week uh, which I did it was a three months probation to see if we liked each other and uh, sure. you know we could get along and uh, we did and I remember the first week I went to work I think it was second week of January and it was a little room upstairs hotter in hell and I remember just working away and sort of sweat dropping off the end of my nose onto a clock I was trying to fix <laughs> and there was a little fan that the boss had that was pointed at him the only time I got it was when he went out to lunch and I pointed at me <laughs> that's apprenticeship old school style <laughs> yeah and I mean from that the apprenticeship was six years which has never been a problem with it and uh, while my Perth was a pretty small town in the in the sixties, and it's a, an advantage that I've always figured that I learned from there is because it was so isolated and parts were so hard to get. Is you had to be prepared to improvise, and it wasn't like you could work on the same watch or the same half dozen watches over and over because it just wasn't that many uh, uh, owners of watches, and everybody had something different. So whatever came in next was the next job. It could be a Rolex, it could be an Omega, the next thing could be a Timex, the next one could mm. be a BFG pin pallet, and then it could be a cuckoo clock. It's, you know, whatever came in next was the next job. Mm. So there was a, a huge diversity that most trainees today do not get. The other side that actually I think has always stood me well is that because of shortage of parts, 
and get parts from Melbourne or Sydney was like only two to three weeks. To get it from <laughs> England was like three <laughs> to six months. Wow. And, 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 and to get it something from America was, you know, nine to 12 months. So the most, you know, who, who wanted jobs sitting around that long? So sure. providing it was doable, you found a way to either find a part and alter it or just make a new part. So, so the thought of having to just pick up something and do it and you know, find a way to do it was instilled mm. at an early age. And I, I think in hindsight, that actually helped me a lot because it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. And the thought has always been, well, someone did it 200 years ago with no electricity. It can't be that hard. <laughs> All you need to do is figure out how. And that's what I did. And, and from there, but I also realized that I wasn't, there was much I didn't know. Well, it seems like, it's, it certainly seems like, David, you learn by trial by fire. I just want to follow the, tra- the tradition that we have in these podcasts to begin with. We have one where we uh, we start off and we talk about um, the watch that we're wearing, what we're currently drinking. <laughs> Roman's usually pretty bad with these, but... <laughs> yeah, I always forget. I get engrossed in the, in the guests. Okay. Um Actually, when I'm working, I don't wear a watch. Yes, a number of watchmakers have told us that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, part of it, I don't wear a watch when I'm working because because I actually do like actually machining as well. And a long time ago, I was machining something. A bit of red hot steel got between my ah. wrist and the watch, and I went, and I said, "Oh, that really <laughs> hurts. I won't do that again." That's baptism by fire. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. And so, but uh, watch I have at the moment, I have, uh, you've seen the photographs, I have the white uh, number one that I, that I wear when I go out. And, uh, so that, and then to drink, I don't know, I kind of filtered water with, a, with mint leaves in it, right? But, it, but at the end of the day, single malt comes to mind. <laughs> you probably have it next to you right now. You just don't want to admit it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds lovely. What about you, Sean? Um, yeah, I I'm wearing um, uh, a vintage Universal Geneve white shadow. Um, I know you're not a fan of uh, white gold or gold, <laughs> David, or at least not 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 working with the metals. Um, it's got a starry painted sort of lacquered doll. Yeah, I quite enjoy it. It's from, I think, 50s or 60s or something like that. And I am drinking, because um, I'm trying to follow tradition, I'm, I'm drinking a blood orange with uh, a splash of gin ah. in the morning. <laughs> well, it's a good start to the day. It, <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's 7.22 a.m. here, so <laughs> well done, Sean. You're doing well. <laughs> uh, well done. Uh, oh, now tell me, white gold. I was recently looking into white gold cases, and somebody asked me about most white gold is, of course, uh, gold and palladium. Uh, sorry, nickel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never really liked white gold because of the nickel. But somebody asked me about white gold and palladium, which is relatively new on the market, I think. So I just wonder if you had any thoughts of, uh, of palladium versus nickel. Um, myself, I don't really have too much of a preference in regards to the material. I, I find usually, in regards to this watch, I, I chased it for quite a while because it had a, a like a starry doll, kind of mm-hmm. like 
like Starry Night. So I'm more drawn by sort of the aesthetic of Watch and and that it was also a micro oh, rotor yeah. movement. It was quite slim. So that's that's what actually drew me to this particular watch and I, I chased it for quite a while. Yeah, actually that's a nice that's a nice movement. Yeah, I like yeah. It's a pity they didn't put display backs on way back then. I know because they definitely they definitely did their work yep. on the movement. Um, it's it's um, I had it serviced recently by another um, friend of the pod uh, watchmaker Michael Woods, and he actually put a, f- a video on his Instagram of servicing this watch oh, and showing nice. the movement. And and quite a few people said quite a few people asked if if that movement was um, encased in a display back because uh, they were surprised by uh, sort of the quality and the the effort put into it. And, and nobody saw it. Yeah, nobody saw. <laughs> <laughs> not even the not even the owner. I, I the original owner, perhaps, yeah. But um, I'm I'm the owner, and I got to see I got to see but, the video. But that that's the extent of it. Uh, nice. But wasn't the idea of these things is you know you put the the decoration and the work on the movement to impress the next watchmaker who was going to service this watch in fifty years time or whatever because they were meant to last. You know, they were meant to be an intergenerational object. Which yeah. Hmm. They were they were designed and engineered up until the late sixties by watchmakers. Hmm. At, at late sixties, uh, the watchmakers were removed, the engineers remained, but the marketeers and the accountants moved in. Yes, and that's when quality started. But when they were made before, they made them like that because it was it was pride of work in the factories, hmm. and and it was much more so then than than now, uh, and. You know, well, we we saw what happened with various things around the place on the thing, but so, some pieces are exquisitely finished and never able to be seen. Uh, I remember a quote from the 60s. We got a thing from Switzerland said, we are no longer making watches for watchmakers. We're making them for customers. Oh, isn't that a chilling thought? And I always took that as an excuse. We, uh, we're going to spend less money on making the watch uh, so there's more profit. And that's certainly pretty much what happened, mm. you know. But and, and and I guess I mean at that time, you know, world was recovering more from World War Two, and things were a bit more affluent, and mm. you know, things were moving a little bit different. And I guess they wanted to produce more. And I suppose if you reduce finishing time and you're making like Omega a couple of million pieces a year, you save like two percent. That's a big number at the end of the year. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a that's a real shame because I I think um I think for me and, and a lot of people on the channel especially for Roman it's it's more so the watch is, is like a connection that you establish with with the maker you you get to enjoy their 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 work their craft and I, mm-hmm. I know especially Roman Roman um, you know has has a lot of uh, relationships or watches from Independence and and it, I mean what are you wearing your wrist right now Roman. <laughs> That's a beautiful segue. Well, uh, well, I knew we had David on uh, David on the show with us. So what I decided to do was get a watch from a maker that he knows and he's collaborated with. So I have my Joshua Shapiro Infinity series. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, yes. I thought, yeah, I thought that would be a pr- particularly appropriate to to wear it today. So oh. it's a beautiful, beautiful watch. Good choice. Mm. And drinks wise, I'm not that exciting. It, it is 7:20 a.m., so I've just got a double espresso. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad Sean is, you know, waving the, the you know, the the ethanol flag on on the show. That's great. <laughs> oh, I'm having the double espressos after this chat. <laughs> I need it. No problem, um, David. If we just go back to your journey for a bit, that that path of restoration seems to be a recurrent 
motif in a lot of independent watchmakers. You know, anybody from Michelle Parmigiani to, you know, Kari Butterline and George Daniels, Derek Pratt, a lot of, you know, that Peter Spickmarin, F. P. Jean, you know, the list is just about endless. Do you think that was a formative experience that really launched you on your career path of then leaving Australia and kicking on to learn more and do more? Yes. And actually, if you look at the list of people who didn't come up through antique restoration, it'll be very short. The only one I can come to mind with is Roger Smith. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yes, because he went through the TAG service centre and right. school. Stuff. But That's right. through yeah. the, people often ask me what to do, and I always tell them, you need some experience under your belt. Okay, you might have been working for a company and you've seen the six models or 10 models they may produce, mm. but there's lots of other ways to get to the same end result. Mm. So I tell people, do get some restoration, do things, just buy an old watch or something, a pocket watch even on eBay or a swap meet or something and work on it, fix it, sell it, and then buy something else, a different thing to, to gain experience on it. Because there's, there's good, bad, and indifferent in everything, uh, old and new. Right. And I, I, I sure. often, I look at the things that over the years, I've actually, uh, this week I've actually doing some restoration. I hardly do any anymore. Um, but because it's a good customer who's also a good friend, I kind of couldn't refuse. And, or if it's something that I'm interested in, like, I don't know, Brigade Pocket Watch or Marine Chronometer, you know, I, I'm, I'm there for that. But yeah. the normal run-of-the-mill stuff I yeah, have lost interest in. Uh, but sure. uh, in looking at things, over the years, I've seen some brilliant ideas and I've seen some terrible ideas. And I've always remembered even sometime in the 70s, I was working on a complicated, I think it was a pocket watch with a calendar, perpetual calendar on it. And it was a nightmare. The idea was good, but the nightmare and how it was executed was terrible. To tighten the friction on the cannon pinion, you had to take all the complete calendar work off. Oh, wow. And it, it was literally a day's work to do a 30-second job. And I, and I thought, I'm never going to do anything this stupid. So everything goes, if I do things that's in layers so that something can be removed in its entirety to work on something else. And, uh, and I saw lots of good sort of sometimes just design ideas of how it looked and other things of how things looked really bad. And so I must remember, don't do that. And uh, But <laughs> <laughs> the, the exp I, I got, there's so many ways that things have been done over the years in the last let's say 300 years, but 200 certainly, uh, of different ideas to get that, as well as you also see technical development, which I find interesting. I'm not sure it's actually fundamentally important. I just find it interesting of how things developed over the years. You know, they started off with something and they worked on it and improved it and did something else. And something like Inkerblock shockproof system, for example, is a good one. You know, they came up with, there, there were was no Inkerblock until... 54 or something like that 56 fairly late and up to that if you dropped the watch or hit it you broke the balance stuff and it was expensive and then when inker block came in <laughs> you know it, it suddenly removed all that uh you know shock problem and it was a very clever way to you know to make something like that and brigade did something that he called paris shock in 1800s and it was better than nothing but it you know it was and not but it wasn't ideal. But it had been worked on and developed since. And you see a number of ideas where they try this and someone else has tried that. And then eventually it gets perfected. And that I find fascinating, like in, I don't know, history of horological engineering, perhaps. 
David, uh, that's it. Really, something that really strikes me about you as a watchmaker, it, it seems like you're a very, you know, curious and especially quite pragmatic watchmaker. Um, if I think about the experiences, the the baptism by fire you spoke about um, in your first uh, six years of apprenticeship of having to, you know, fix everything and and nothing was available to you. And, and I'm remembering a conversation you had on the minutia repeater with uh, Kieran Shaker, where you 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 emphasize a lot about, um, you know. I guess I would describe it as serviceability of parts of, of continuity of, you know, of, of building something that's going to last going forward that that can be, uh, you know, a fix that can be, um, you know, that lifespan continued and, 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 and really be a, a lifetime piece. And I find that quite interesting because, you know, when we think of, um, or at least when I think of a lot of, you know, really special uh, independent um, uh, watchmakers such as yourself or, or uh, really special watches, it, it seems that the focus is always solely on maybe the aesthetics or the accomplishment of the complication or, you know, uh, the idea of the watch more so than, you know, is this going to be something that is maybe a utilitarian piece or, or something that uh, is going to carry on more so beyond just the idea of it? Uh, I was I was curious if you would expand on that, on your approach to sort of uh, watchmaking, uh, your focus. Um, one of the things I decided in the beginning, again, of having seen a number of pieces that were unserviceable alongside some pieces that were imminently serviceable. You know, it's a point of, 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 of somebody made it rather than something made it. If, and I think if somebody makes it, somebody should be able to repair it given the skill parameters, of course. But when it comes to doing yeah. my own things, I always approach it like as though this is beyond our lifetimes. You know, you think, you know, when you've seen watches, not so much watches, clocks that are 400 years old and still work extremely well, it makes you pause for thought about what they did to allow that to happen. And there's many things that are 200 years old that are still fantastic. So I decided I wanted to do things that would last, that, that would be repairable. They wouldn't be put together in such a way as like spot welded or laser welded or put together where you, you have to replace the whole unit rather than just repair what's wrong um, or, or what's, mm. sorry, maybe not what's wrong, what's needed to be repaired. So I try and design everything I can to make that possible that someone with skill will be able to fix anything I've done. It's not, and hence, I'm not too keen on exotic materials because, well, you know, they may, I think experimentation with exotic materials is important, but I think also their reliability needs to be understood. And if you think about this, just think about VHS cassettes, right? Mm. If you want, nowadays, that's not that long ago and they're dead. You know, there's nothing you can do. Absolutely. And we know that for the most part, the watch could potentially be yours for your life and go to your to your kids and then their kids. So, you know, that, that's a long time for something that needs to maintain time and be able to be worked on it because it, it, it's like any mechanical device. It needs service. And uh, I, so I, I try and build in something that can be serviced rather than something that's throwawayable. I just have this, when the Swatch Group bought out their first Swatch, it was a really bad day. <laughs> but do you think? See, but I do, see. I often wonder about that because, in some ways, you know, when I look at the the watchmaking landscape, 
cheap watches emphasize just how amazing the work that you do is, for example. Agreed. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. So I think, that, I mean, the thing that you touched on there with, you know, with luxury watchmaking or high-end watchmaking should be that. It should be made to last generations. Uh, I think part of the problem now is because a lot of the bigger brands are driven by marketing, it's always, you know, it's like you need a new model out. It has to replace, you know, it, there's always new, 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 new rather than, well, whatever we sold the customer last year should still work and they should still be timeless and you know, keep good good rate. Yeah, and this is a, a subject that bothers, I'm going to say most of us sort of older generation horologists, and George Daniels in particular, Derek Pratt, myself, others have said the same thing, that the accent is on decoration, not improvement in timekeeping. In fact, improvement in timekeeping may be going side going south rather than getting better in favor of well bling <laughs> you know and uh, I, I i mean i see the need for finish and looks at it but there's a a far greater importance placed today on finishing than there is on timekeeping but sort of let's say go back 40 50 years ago you know a watch was a necessary thing and you had to have it and it was utilitarian even the expensive stuff the highline stuff was still had to perform as well as and look good but the i would like to see the money that's being spent on crazy designs and crazy ideas maybe done in improving timekeeping and i'm not seeing that no i think i think you're you're right uh, in that assessment uh, sad, sad as as it is well maybe let's talk about some of your amazing creations because you've started you know your path on making in the watchmaking bit started, I think it was 1978 when you made your first clock. Yeah. Maybe tell us some of yeah your work on that. Um, actually, I started off to make a watch, a pocket watch. I had a right, and, and I was I had an English pocket a po- English pocket watch, and uh, I was going to just copy that as a as an exercise in learning. And it wasn't long before I remember this was the days before fax, never mind email. And uh, and I just ran out of tools. I didn't. I, I had a lot of equipment, uh, but I didn't have enough. And and to find mm. to find more was very very difficult. And it was difficult out of Switzerland at the time because they were, you know, suffering from the you know the, the quartz revolution and the industry sure. was was in a pretty sad way. And they were very, I, I don't know, slow to help. I think they viewed anything with suspicion and. Right. Uh, and so it was hard to get tooling. So while I was looking for that, in particular, what I was after was wheel cutter and pinion cutters. And while I was doing that, I came across a company in England that sold wheel and pinion cutters for clocks. And I thought, well, right. I, as I'm not going to sit around here and twiddle my thumbs. I have to. I have to do something. I, <laughs> you know, I, I, by this time I was I was still with Amiga, but I was I was getting well bored. Sure. <laughs> and and I, I and so I did and that's and then um the clock I made again I was doing in after hours I was doing restor uh, antique pocket watch restoration for a couple of collectors and one of them came in with this clock and I thought oh that looks interesting and and to be honest I mean mm. there's clocks and there's clocks the vast majority a good utilitarian items, you know, but they weren't that particularly good. And it was one of the first really good clocks I'd seen, had seen. And, mm. you know, um, you know, and Breguet and Jeanvier have proven there are excellent clocks. They're just not understood or respected like they should be. 
Um, so anyway, so I, did, so I made the clock and that went good. And the second one was the same circumstance. I'd finished the first one, which took a year to make in spare time. And wow. I got onto the second one, both of the, the second one and the first I still have here with me. And they even still, oh, fabulous. They still work when I wind them up. Um, <laughs> uh, That's lucky. Uh, yeah. And so I, that took me into clocks and I realized there was a whole world in clocks that I hadn't appreciated because I hadn't really seen it, seen them. And one of the things that had always attracted me was precision and accuracy rather than just function. Uh, you know, as in it, it keeps time. What do you want? You know, but well, yeah, what sort of time does it keep? And I, I know generally clocks are not understood and, uh, and certainly underappreciated, but without precision clocks, watches wouldn't exist. And there were precision clocks that made, you know, 300 years ago that make watches look like garbage timekeepers, you know, and, and, and again, that's not understood. And part of it, because there's been probably 98% of clocks made a utilitarian. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and when we should tell our listeners, when you say making a clock, we should tell them to go and look at your website or look at your recent Horological Society of New York presentation about the clocks. I mean, the clocks that you make are beyond incredible. I mean, you know, I mean, you make double pendulum clocks, and I think it was a statistic something like 14 double pendulum clocks were made in history. And you've made five of them, <laughs> which is quite a contribution, really, <laughs> if you're forced to think about it. It, it is, yes. Um, and actually, again, when I got the sorry, Art, of, Art of Breguet by Daniels, which I got that 78, 79, something like that. Mm, but, came in 75, came out, yeah. And I, I was going through, and there were three things I saw in there that I thought I want to make. One was the double pendulum clock. One was the three-wheel clock. And one was the exhibition tourbillon or the table, to- and all of which I've now made. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, well, it's good to aim high and then, you know, to achieve it and then keep going. I mean, that <laughs> that is quite quite a thing. I, I use the phrase in, in New York and other times that I tell people, it's far better to set your guy- goals high and not achieve them than to set them too low and do. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Yes, that, that is very profound. Right. And... You know, there's always, this is something that's not understood. There's always room at the top. It's not like there's like a square meter and that's it. No one else can have it. There's hmm. there's infinite room for everybody and, and the door is always open. It's always, the challenge is always there. All you have to do is do it. So it's not like it's a closed door or you can't get access to it. it that's absolutely not true. So the thing is to try and set your goals as high as you can and achieve the best you can each day rather than just enough to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are very profound rules for living, not just rules for clockmaking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah tr- exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and there's always, and again, goes back to antique restoration where you see ho-hum things and then you see brigades. There's nothing ho-hum about any brigade. Other than the modern ones, which are very ho hum. <laughs> um, well, I was going to ask you about sort of the the people who have influenced you, your your own sort of horological development along the way. I mean, you've mentioned you know historical figures. You mentioned Breguet, who's relatively well known. I mean, you've also mentioned Auntie Jean Vier, who I feel is still not given as much recognition as 
you should. True. Are there any others, you know? Yeah, any other sort of Bertou or anyone else? Uh, or even friends or contemporaries, sort of more modern? I mean, well, Daniels influenced everybody. Without Daniels, there might not have been independent watchmaking. Uh, I mean, he, he, he did what was said couldn't be done. And, and he's shown mm. that it can be done, and by you know many others as well. Uh, historically, Breguet, yes, uh, uh, of the English makers, Arnold, uh, Graham, mm. uh, Harrison, I find fascinating, but he hadn't doesn't quite do it for me. Um, Interesting. Well, he, he, his particular goal was an, a specific job, and yes, or the, to get the prize. Yes, the the, the marvel. In that, what he did between H1, 2, 3, and 4, 4 is so utterly different from 1, 2, and 3 yes. that it's incomprehensible it came out of the same man's hands. But, Indeed, but that, I agree. that just yeah. shows his brilliance in, in, in doing that. Uh, it's interesting about Jean Fier, There's he's almost unknown. And part of it is, I believe, because Breguet got famous because of watches. Jean Vier mm. only did clocks. I don't think he did a single mm. watch. And hence there was this barrier, if you like, or lack of recognition that's given to him. But Jean, Derek Pratt, Anthony Randall, myself, uh, all admire Jean Vier more than, I think he was probably better than Breguet. And I think a lot of Breguet's clocks were probably made by Jean Vier. Well, particularly the the double uh, pendulum ones, isn't it? There's a bit of a question mark around who made it before Breguet bought the workshop of Jean Vier's and released them. Exactly. And and Breguet and he were good friends and Breguet bailed him out a few times because he was a bit of a naughty boy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's that's always mandatory. He's an artist. You know, you can't constrain people like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I know, but he was still a naughty boy. It's a surprising thing is he worked for the royalty. He stayed in Paris, survived the revolution, survived the revolution and went back to working for the new royalty. It's amazing that he was able to somehow do that when, well, everyone else pretty much left town because it was too risky. Yeah, or or got or met the guillotine. Yeah, wow, yeah, that yeah. that is incredible. And uh, so he, he's not been appreciated, and his works are astounding. If you can find, there's a book that Michael Hayard produced a few years ago about Jean Vier. It's, it's quite a thick and expensive book, mm. but it's 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 abs- The work in there is absolutely stunning, and he did unbelievably complicated things that. Uh, uh, amazing as to how he did it, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Some of the, and I've got the book with me here on the shelf. Uh, it, it is, you're right. It is a must-have. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And yet, and yet, it's not truly appreciated. And part of it, I think, is because with watches you can put on your wrist and you can show people easy. Mm. A clock you can't carry around with you just to show friends or whatever, and you can't sort of pick it up and turn it around and look at it. I think clocks are interesting because, I mean, I've been in preparation for sort of speaking with you today. I was sort of reflecting back on clocks. They seem to have kind of receded from the cultural space, I feel. You know, I mean, if I think of clocks now, I mean, you know, the Atmos clock, maybe Erwin Sattler for some of our German and European friends, um, you know, and maybe LePay clocks, but they've really got a boost with recent collaborations with, you know, people like um, Max Buser and MBNF and things yeah. like that. There's no other clocks, as far as I know, you know, that are being made to a high level or at least appreciated in a wider community. Yeah. Is that a fair sort of Yeah, assumption? the only one you've missed is Sinclair Harding in England. 
Uh, oh yes, no, but that's a sep- yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but pretty much, there's nobody else. And also, the general interest in clocks is waned dramatically. Uh, in and in the antique mm. in the antique world as well as in the modern world is just uh, it's just pretty much gone. Disappeared. You know, I mean, it's it's happened before, I suppose, and it'll take some time for it to be appreciated again. Uh, and and it's a pity, I think. But again, sometimes clocks don't fit into modern houses very well, which and largely depends how you make it. You can make it contemporary, or you can make it like a replica. And I don't like doing replicas. I like to sort of develop something myself, uh, like with the exhibition Torpion. Breguet's idea was really great, but I wanted to make it look a little more attractive. Plus, I had to do something, so I added The Wandering Moon. I was going to ask you about The Wandering Moon. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing that, apart from, uh, I think, Viani Holter is the only one who does it in the wristwatch. That's yeah. the only other maker as far as... Yeah, okay, so that is correct. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to show it. Uh, Jean, as far as I can tell, jean Vier used it in three, perhaps four clocks, and uh, variations of it, not quite the same. And that was it. It was never picked up by anybody else. And uh, Vianney was the next person to use it, and then myself. And I don't understand why, because it is such an excellent way to, to actually display the moon. And until like 20 years ago, Swiss watches would come out with their high-precision moon, moon phase, which was just a simple disc that clicked over once a day. And it's already hours out per lunation at the, at the end of the year it's days out that's not accurate that's garbage <laughs> and, uh, and i can remember having several arguments about it i think the first really accurate moon i did was on a the perpetual wall clock i made based with daniel's calendar system in the thing oh, wow. and that had i'm trying to remember that was actually quite accurate that was i think like six or seven hours in a year and then when I did the wow. when I did the spherical moon on the double pendulum clocks, uh, that's uh, the error on that was I think three point two seconds in two point six years. Wow, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> and, and you you will see, having said that, there's a few independent makers are claiming their moon phases are good for a thousand years, and I can tell you they're not. And there's reasons. The u- the universe is not static. There's nutation and there's drift. So what's right now, and even right in 100 years, will be different because the universe has shifted in its orientation. So it's up to be, to be right, you know, to seconds a year, a lunation for a thousand years, it's just not going to happen. And this is, this is a, part of, a part of the mathematics and the mechanics behind it that is generally not understood and it's also it's also almost never spoken about by the industry it's just kind of taken for granted rather than actually researched yeah that's, i find that's really interesting david because i i mean uh, admittedly i when it comes to um collecting I, i'm at i'm at watches and i i've just start picking up you know just some odds and ends some some clocks that interest me um uh, because i I, I was sitting at home and I, I noticed, you know, the devices that we used to tell time around the home, at least in my house, are just these little, <laughs> you know, alarm clocks here and there, these, um, you know, Kmart, Walmart <laughs> alarm clocks, or, right. I, I, or, you know, on my computer screen at the bottom right corner. So I, I used the excuse 
Um, part of the same reason why I guess I got into watches to not look at my phone for time to just have, have, <laughs> well, have something I can, you know, build a relationship with and sort of enjoy, um, you know, reading a timer, mm-hmm. enjoy seeing how it works. And I was, I was really surprised, um, looking at your work to, to see the level of complexity and the accuracy of, of these clocks. Um, and, and to see your work, you've actually, you've actually, um, uh, implemented improvements, um, on some of the designs that that we've spoke about so far, it's it's quite it's quite a curious thing for me. I, I wasn't I was expecting the sort of accuracy, um, uh, sort of fed that it only came from you know say you know uh, digital or quartz devices so to speak. But yeah, it's quite in depth. I mean, what what experience or, or what did you have to do to gather this knowledge of of um, sort of the engineering behind it or the the formula behind um, this level of accuracy to, to build it into a clock? Uh, that's actually a, a really good question and kind of diff- hard to answer because as often as people have asked me, like, well, you have a degree in engineering? No. You have a degree in metallurgy? <laughs> no. You have a degree in mathematics? No. You have a degree in designing? No. So, well, how did you learn it? And I said, well, I wanted to learn it, so I did. And so mm. instead of researching, let's say, instead of having a degree in engineering and covering engineering in its broadest concept and then narrowing it down to, I don't know, bridge construction, road construction, automobiles or designing or, you know, other mechanical devices, mm. I just narrowed it down. I wanted to know about a specific area and I learned that as opposed to trying to learn the whole field because I'm not interested in the whole field. And but. You all, I, I don't quite know where it all came from, but I saw things and I saw things that I somehow intuitively I knew seemed to seemed to be a good idea. And then I would ask somebody as to about it as like, is this a good idea or not? And eventually you learn mm-hmm. that you can make learn some things and think, okay, I'm right on this, but I'm not sure about that. And then you remember what you were wrong about. And then to research other areas, <clears throat> excuse me, of where you can make improvements or how do you do it. I mean, in pe- pendulums are extremely complex. They're simple devices, but extremely concept, complex in function and still, even today, not fully understood as, as to what they wow. do and how they behave. And uh, the last improvement I made to the things on the double pendulums I did was to um, – use fused silica pendulum rods because that's the most sta- thermally stable material on the planet today. And mm, uh, wow. which uh, the, the only downside is, is if you know, they, they, they're because they're quartz, they're breakable. If it was a, a metal, mm. of course, it might get bent, but not break. And, but it's not just a single item that makes a precision or high precision clock. It's, it's multiple things and pieces, uh, things that wouldn't make any difference at all on a normal domestic clock and now suddenly make a huge difference. Uh, One of the things was when I started off with the first double pendulum and I didn't realize how accurate that clock could be when I started it, but I put weight trays on the pendulum rods made out of brass because traditionally they're made out of brass. It looks pretty. And Mm -hmm. I was, when I was checking the temperature compensation for it uh, and and I connected up to like a, uh, a, a pickup that gives me a readout on a computer so I can see, I get instant gratification. And <laughs> always a good thing. 
And then I realized, I thought, I, I had done some things like, why have I got this this error here in temperature change? Because sort of, uh, Sean knows what it's like. The, air, the, the heating here is via hot air, not by, you know, floor heating. So it means in wintertime, mm. if you want it hot, you close the doors and windows and turn the heating up. And if you want it cold, mm. you open the doors and windows and turn the heating off and tell everyone to put something warm on. <laughs> and the, <laughs> you, you can get a change of like 30 or 40 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, really easy. And, wow. and so that gives you like a fast reaction to it. But I discovered one of the things, the weight tray had like a collar that was maybe 20 millimeters tall, a weight tray itself. The diameter doesn't matter, it's the height. Um, uh, that was another sort of three millimeter. There. And, and that um, 23 millimeters that was on there, on the tray, was giving me 10 parts per million per degree centigrade temperature error. Wow, you're really playing with small, yeah. yeah, with small shavings. Wow, you're right. And then sometimes people will ask about, well, what's ten parts per million? And Sean will know from living in LA. Everybody knows what that means because that's what the pollution levels are printed in the paper every day. Parts per million. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, but it's you know it, it's it's common there. The other sure. thing is, it's like, well, what? How big is that? That's you know, one part in a million parts. How hard is that? I said, well, think of it this. It's one second in a million seconds. Mm. I said, how big is that? Oh, God, take like it's 13 and a half days. <laughs> wow. And, so that's, and, yeah. you know, so uh, it, it's a, when you get to, like, the fine point of things, like seconds per day is too coarse a measurement. So parts per million are much easier to deal with. And yes. I was fascinated by that because because the clocks that you make are amazingly precise. Yes. You know, and yeah. Now, more recently, you, you've moved. Well, is that ship's bells? That's lovely. oh no, it's, it's a clock in the. I have I have set, surprising enough. I have several clocks at home. Um, and <laughs> your own or other makers? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have some of mine, but I also have uh, four English antique long cases as well. Oh, beautiful. That, that beautiful. I like. And I keep one of them going because you wake up at night, what time it is, you wait long enough, and the bell will strike and it'll tell you. <laughs> Lovely. Oh, <laughs> um, beautiful. So yes, that's what was. Uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, I, I was I was so, so saying. Um, what 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 I find really interesting is you know your background and a lot of your career has been making amazingly precise, high precision clocks, double pendulum turbions, you know things like that. Now, more recently, you've moved in wristwatches, and it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but those kind of levels of precision are just not achievable in a wristwatch. Is that correct? It's not achievable in any watch. Yes. So uh, what? Yeah, sorry, go. No, no I, was, I, I was going to make the exception that uh, it, the, they made for the military uh, marine chronometers, which are up there, um, but those things were put in gimbals and not moved around like in a pocket watch or a wristwatch. Uh, they yeah, also they made, uh, Hamilton in particular, extremely successful in making a, a, a deck watch, which was a large pocket watch in a box that just sat there. And that, that was the next most accurate thing. And it, so wristwatches and pocket watches were good, but compared to that, they weren't as good. So what made you, what, what gave you the spur to move towards wristwatches in more recent years? Well, I'd always started off to make a watch, remember? Mm, I couldn't get, I, the, I, could, I couldn't get the, the equipment. And then I got sort of fascinated and sidetracked by clocks. But <laughs> I, I'd always intended 
to come back to circle from where I started in watches, and which is what I wanted to do. But after I finished the uh, last double pendulum clock that had the cal- perpetual calendar, sunrise, sunset equation of time, and the other half was sidereal time with a wandering moon and a planisphere. Mm. I, I sort of, I sort of somehow consider that my masterpiece. And it's sort of at that point, I, I, I this didn't come about instantly. It sort of came about slowly. But I thought about, it and I thought I kind of have achieved everything I wanted to achieve. So now the time was to turn turn to watches, and wow. which which is you know what I did, and it's. Probably as far as I know, I'm the only one anywhere who does both watches and clocks. It's a, a very divided field. You know, it's, it's the same as like a, between automotive like cars and earth moving equipment. You know, they're both, <laughs> they're both wheeled equipment. And anybody who thinks a Mack truck or earth moving equipment isn't a, a precision device is nuts. Because if, if you have a Mack truck and you've, you've got to haul you know, 30,000 30, kilos of stuff across the Nullarbor, that truck better be pretty darn good. Indeed, and pretty you know, reliable, that's right. It, yes, it, ha- it has to be at its own level of, you know, precision. And the same with earth-moving equipment. If, if you can't have like a, a truck that's going to take a 300-ton load of iron ore or something on the back of it, everything has to be right or it's not going to do its job. So it's not that it's worse, it's just different. And, and precision applied in a different direction to it. Uh, and so in going into watches was a change, but most people did not. Uh, very a, a lot of watchmakers have never touched a clock in their life, and they just think they're horrible things. Um, in some cases, <laughs> they're right. In some cases, there's some pretty horrible watches out there too. Uh, <laughs> but very, very few people have done both like what I've done. And I actually, I'm not aware of anybody there. There's certainly, as an apprentice, you started off on clocks. And of course, your goal, that was the idea was it was just, this was just cheap commercial grade clocks that you could, didn't really matter, you know, if you made a mess of it because they weren't expensive anyway, you know, it was a few dollars. But it gave you the, 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 the mechanics and the engineering principles of the same as watches, but but it gave you the feel of how things fit together, how they work, what screws, nuts, springs, and things are all combined to do uh, with it. Um, and, and, of course, the goal was as soon as you could was to get off clocks and onto watches because that was, uh, you know. The happening thing. Yes, and, and I did the same, except I retained an interest. I saw some better clocks and retained an interest in it. Uh, but I know when I was in England, the watch and the clock shop were completely separated. You, I, as a watch guy, I could not go into the into the clock workshop and vice versa. It just, you know, it, it might not be a death penalty, but it was close. Yeah, well, goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, yeah, just to make a comment, I think George Daniels is the only person I can think of, you know, who made, I mean, he made a marine chronometer, then he made those, you know, Breguet-type three-wheel clocks and then he moved yeah, yeah. George was lucky. He had that clock in there for a service, so he copied it for his. And oh, is that I, right? <laughs> I never. I, I had to look at photographs and figure it out. But yes, George did that. He made a couple of clocks with grasshopper escapements as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, but the rest of the world, I don't think anybody does it. So I'm, uh, somehow, I, I ended up unique in it. But it wasn't intention. It's just result. 
Yeah, I think the only modern one I can think of would be um, the Russian fellow, Konstantin Chaikin, who makes watches and then he makes these really ultra complicated calendar clocks for, you know, the Russian Easter calendar and things like that. I remember seeing something. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's very that's uncommon. Very uncommon. So and and so and the most clock people don't want to know about watches and most watch people <laughs> don't want to know about clocks. So I, I I've ended up here and there's always interesting things in both worlds. I, I was going to say, we, we mentioned The Wandering Moon. I'm actually, my next project, when I uh, finish up, a, I've got a couple of clocks here, as I said. I, I posted one on Instagram this morning, uh, which was a jump a desk clock. Absolutely stunning piece. Beautiful. Oh, wow. um, as I've always had a soft spot for these things. Uh, mm. It's English made, but it looks French, but almost, except it's made better than the French things are. They're beautifully made. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, this it works. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, French had a really, France had a really good horological industry until after the war. Or maybe it was because uh, of the, maybe it was because of the wars. Um, and they were still making watches, uh, I mean, cheap variety. Lip was one brand that yes, comes to mind. Uh, they were still making them into the late 60s. And I think after, I think Quartz just wiped them out. But they, mm. they you know, French produced an enormous number of really high quality clocks and even quite economical. They, they didn't really make junk. But once I clear these pieces up, um, I've, my next project is to a platinum watch with a genre wandering moon on it. Oh, wow. Uh, which is um, sort of just, that was, you might've saw, I put on Instagram a, a, a case I made in brass. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I did. well, that's essentially for this project. And uh, also my, I had a jeweler who was going to make in LA, who was going to make the case for me because I was a bit nervous about working with precious metals, never having done much of it. And let's just say he monumentally screwed up. <laughs> had to take it in your own hands. Now, did you did he actually screw up, or would ninety nine percent of people accept it? But he screwed up in David Walter's eyes. I'm always curious about that. Fortunately, at this time, the last visit I had, I was down there with a friend, so I had a witness. It wasn't my eyes. Okay. okay. <laughs> and it, it was just uh, whatever it was. So I thought, you know what the hell, I'm going to figure out how to do this myself. It isn't, it isn't rocket science. It isn't that hard. So, uh, so I made the case in brass first uh, to find out the shortcomings because, well, let's just say platinum's, platinum is expensive, but it's also very, very difficult to work with. And so I thought, let's just, let's just get it right so we know what we're doing before we go ahead and do it. And which is something you know, experimenting with something, experimenting with something up front before you actually go onto the workpiece is generally a good idea, because the chances of getting it right first time, mm, not so good. So David, with the with the watchmaking now, um, since you're you know it's a bit of a transition from uh, clock making to watchmaking, are you are you looking for you know? Uh, some sort of a like a like a challenge or evolution or to achieve um, uh, as much precision as you can out of out of out of your watches um, yeah I'm, I'm that, that's part of the goal as well part of what I'm working at uh, one thing with this one I, I like the other independents will stay with 18,000 trains or 18 or 19,000 800 or 21,006 maximum, I will never use a 28,000 or faster train, ever. There's everything in the world wrong with it. 
And I know why that I know why the factories have done it. I know why they've got small balances. It works for them. But Breguet had a saying, which I'm paraphrasing, was never pass up an opportunity to use large teeth in a wheel. And in oh, his right. In his day, this was important. You know, pocket watches were not particularly dustproof or anything. So, you know, dirt was a major problem along with poor oils. And the modern watches have such small teeth, the tiniest little thing in there will stop it. The other side is because there's so many of them and you need stronger springs to drive it, there's more wear and tear. So I don't believe the longevity of those watches, say, Say uh, a modern watch today with 28,800 train, I don't think is going to last as long as, say, a, a, a paddock from 1960 with a slower train. Just It's going to wear itself out. And so, so hence, I will stay with slower trains. And as you notice, so does every, all the other independents, unless they actually are, are, are pirating a, a bits out of a Swiss movement that has a fast train in it. No, you're right. I think Kari uses that. I think Roger does as well. Yes. Yeah, actually, you're right. Now I think of it, you're you're absolutely right. And, and John, the list, and well, Derek Pratt, who was a really good friend of, he he died so early because he's really he and Anthony Randall were superb watchmakers, better than George. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about sort of friends and contemporaries because, you know, Derek, Derek, you've you've mentioned Derek Pratt a few times and I was lucky enough, I was in London uh, for the Worship of Company of Clockmakers event and I got to meet his daughter, Carol, who who was a lovely, (laughs) lovely person as well. So we had a good chat about Derek. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, once again, I I also feel that his contributions are sort of haven't quite been recognised enough. No. No, and, and it's nice that, well, Frodsham sort of picked up some ideas from him in their watch, and there's the guys out who are trying to make that Derek, Ratz, Derek Pratt wristwatch. Mm, yes. Is, I've, actually, I've actually seen one, and yeah. it's pretty good. Don't like the dial much, but the movement is beautiful. And, again, they've used uh, Derek's version of the Rouleau Triangle uh, to make the escapement work and the remontoire, which is very nice. So... Uh, and I saw somebody else recently is doing a similar thing. So that's, but I noticed they didn't actually give Derek credit for the idea, which is which is dreadful. Yeah, that that, that irks me. It's one of the reasons I make sure, like the guys I work with at times, I give them credit, and in part because over the years I I never got any from anybody, and it really really bugged me. So if somebody is doing something good. There's plenty of room for everybody and, and give the younger guys credit because I want to encourage them to keep doing things and growing. Absolutely. And you have been very generous in acknowledging, you know, the, the collaborators. I mean, I just think of, you know, Josh Shapiro has made dials for you. I think you talked about Artur Akhmayev about the engravings. And even even the chap who makes the, the boxes for you, I think it was David Sims, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is wonderful. Um, have you collaborated on projects for other makers that you can talk about, even if they, if, even if they aren't? <laughs> no, nope, never, never been asked, not once. Wow, interesting. Wow, and wow. Perhaps I put part of that. There. Maybe if I was in Europe or England, maybe I don't know, uh, but certainly for, I, I haven't been here. Uh, as, as, nobody has ever asked me to do anything with them ever. That's see. I find that really interesting because looking at your work, I mean, your expertise would be 
unsurpassable. Certainly in clocks, you know, in precision clocks and double pendulums and the whole, you know, there's a whole area of horology that you've really made your own. Um, I'm sort of surprised by that. Oh, that's that's a big loss on their part. I, I, yeah, and I know because I've always been available and approachable. You know, I haven't been like behind a closed door where I don't want to talk <laughs> sure. to you. You know, when I first met Joshua, it was because I was looking for, I had to have an engine turn dial done. And a friend back east in Pennsylvania said, well, I've got a, this guy, Joshua, just bought an engine from me. This is like five, six years ago. And said, "Why?" Wow. And said, "Maybe he could do it." So that's Joshua and I met, and we got on well. And I can say this was a a young a young guy, not that young really, but as a young guy who's setting out to do something. Um, why not help him? You know, help help it get. You know, so you know, and, and we get on re- really well together. Um, and whenever I can help him, he's he's working on making his own uh, movement mm. at the moment, and. Uh, often contacts me for like advice of how to do this or what's a good way for that or something. Mm. And I'll offer whatever help I can because I want to see it proceed. I don't want to see it stagnate. And part of this is I learned everything I learned the hard way. I didn't (laughs) get a whole lot of help. I had to make a a pest of myself amongst those who knew um, (laughs) to try try and learn things uh, and then figure it out myself. And I thought, why should somebody else spend the next 30 years doing that when I can help them next week? I mean, that's a very noble and wonderful thing that you are doing. You know, that transmission of knowledge I'm fascinated by. Um, I'm not a technical person, you know, so I approach watchmaking and, you know, watchmakers like you, you know, with with awe in my eyes because, you know, your skill level is far beyond what I, you know, I can sort of follow the theory, but I can't do anything practical. But that transmission of knowledge and the loss of knowledge from one experienced watchmaker when they pass or, you know, retire, uh, it breaks my heart in some ways, you know, because that's that's irreplaceable. Actually, you just made me realize something. I remember in Vienna, I I got friendly with a couple of old retired watchmakers. I'm mean, so old, you know. I mean, I was late twenties, and they were I don't know nineties. Yeah. Oh uh, wow. And yeah. I mean, and they they obviously had retired, but they still had some interest in it. And somehow or another, I got friendly with them. And then I realized these guys are going to go, and they all mm. said the same thing: they hadn't been able to pass anything on to the next generation. Uh, in their case, I mean, the war had a lot to do with that. Um, and I thought, I, and, I, and I, you just made me realize, and it's one of my thoughts is why I go out of my way, because I want to see what I've learned put together, put to somewhere else. And if I can help others do it, so much the better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the things I'm passionate about, you know, I independent watchmaker is one thing, but horological books is a real passion of mine. And uh, one of the questions I had was, you know, have you ever thought about writing some of these things down? <laughs> Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) but having put that, I've written a a lot of articles, not not in the last couple of years, but I've written a lot before about things. So what though, how they've gone, I don't know, but also I'm still (laughs) busy doing things, you know, and it it takes time to write books, takes time to write articles. And, uh, but one of the things has happened as a, a friend, Come as a New, uh, a New Zealander living in Switzerland. He works with the WASTEP training. Uh, mm. His name's Paul Madden. Uh, and you'll, oh, yes. 
you, you've probably seen the name and through somebody else we, we met and then he, we were talking about what what's done and everything he said you should write a book and I thought uh, yeah I'd like to but I I've made a couple of starts here and there but I just never was able to persevere with it I got I got distracted by more interesting work um, but anyway <laughs> So well, this is a small. So it's, a, it's a very small world because one of our hosts, uh, co-hosts here on the Fifth Wrist, Michael Woods, actually did the Wostep program, and Paul Madden was his teacher at, uh, at Wostep. So yeah, it's a yeah. small connected world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, true. And and Paul's a nice guy. He was here last Christmas. He, he was going to be here this summer, but of course nobody's going anywhere at the moment. Uh, sure. But and so what he decided to do is he called me up about a week later. He said, "I was thinking about this. He says I'm going to write your biography." Wonderful. Right. So he's working on it. And we met up not last year, year before uh, for the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers uh, Micklemas mm. dinner. And we, oh, nice. Uh, next, next year, he might go down. I'm probably going to sponsor him for uh, Freeman. Freeman. Yeah. 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 Lovely. Yeah. And so so he's doing it. So that, that takes a load off my mind. Plus, he's not. He's already a trained watchmaker, so he knows what he's talking about. You know, I can talk about a clutch wheel or a third wheel or, uh, you know, locking pallet, and he knows what I mean. Sure, of course, and, of course. And, and he's capable of putting it into context as well. So I don't know how uh, how long the book's going to be. Everything's been delayed because of what we've lived mm. with now, but he's still we're still talking about it, still still proceeding. I mean, that's lovely because I'm sort of reflecting back on, um, I've recently read uh, Timothy Treffery's book about De- uh, Derek Pratt as well. And I'm just thinking, it's just such a lovely thing to have, you know, just a distillation or at least a summary of achievements and thoughts down on paper. That's a wonderful thing. Oh, looking forward to reading. I- I'll pre-order a copy of your biography now. <laughs> Well, thank you. You're the first one. <laughs> oh, there you go. Signed copy. Actually, our, our thoughts before we had thought at one point of releasing it in a couple of years at Salon QP in London. Well, that's gone. And Indeed. Well, well I, I can pick mine up at the clockmaker's dinner as well. I'm a freeman of the company, so <laughs> maybe I'll convince um, our mutual friend, um, uh, Tim Jackson to you know meet us there. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a, that's. I, I did actually ask them about it because the company has to be cautious in what they do because they're a a, a, a charitable organisation. Sure. And but what might be possible? I mean, this is dealing with bureaucracy, of course. Is perhaps we might have the book launch at the Watchmakers Collection at the museum in West London. It was at oh, Nicebridge, Nicebridge, Kensington, wherever it is, at the Science mm. So that's maybe yeah, yeah, Science Museum. So yeah. We thought, um, not failing that, but maybe as well as we might do it at the HSNY in New York. Well, I mean, the, the talk that you made, you did for the HSNY was, was very good, and I strongly encourage all our listeners to, uh, to check it out. It, it, it's a really, you know, you, you explain your journey as the independent watchmaker really well, but also there's some wonderful sort of, historical pieces about evolution of double pension clocks and things like that. It was fascinating. Yeah, I know, but just on that subject, it's always amazed me that, I mean, there was plenty of skill available in the day and money was not a problem at that point. <laughs> but I never understood why the double pendulum clock didn't wasn't wide, more widely used, especially because everyone was after accuracy, you know, and uh, the double pendulum clock, I think I displayed on the board. I have a, I had it running not in a vacuum. 
because if you put things in the vacuum, you you improve timekeeping by a factor of ten. Just that simple. Mm. Just by removing air. And wow. it, working in a vacuum has other problems, but still. But I had that double pendulum clock running. I had it running for several days at 0.01 second per year. Goodness. Goodness me. Now, now, wow. now, in the terms of a clock not in a vacuum, it can't keep that up. Physics fix that. Of course, in California, the other thing that messes it up is earthquakes. <laughs> oh, of course, yes. You know, and, and, yeah. and that that messes up precision timekeeping, like from a pendulum, because you can measure the things. You know, and uh, I can measure the freeway. A one hundred and one freeway is about a mile away, and there's a long bridge over the San Ynez River, and the bridge is maybe mm. a third of a mile long. And um, and not in summer, but in winter time when the earth is wet, it transmits vibrations better. And I can measure semis going over the joins on the bridge. Oh, wow. They're going, you know, kabump, wow. kabump, kabump. And, and of course, things change it's, uh, with it. And it's also possible. I, hadn't, I haven't actually done a whole year's test because I haven't got a double pendulum clock of my own to do it on. Um, <laughs> but I'm also, I'm also sure I can detect the phases of the moon because it affects gravity. The high tide, low tide affects gravity flow. The gravity flow affects the pendulum, which affects timekeeping. Wow. Yeah, wow. Actually, a question I was going to ask you about, about the double pendulum clocks, you know, is that we hear this concept of resonance. Ah, yes. It's spoken about. I was wondering, could you settle, uh, you're the only person I, I, I can think of to even ask to, who would know the answer, you know, there's this thing about does it transmit through the metal of the movement, or does it transmit, or does the resonance occurs in in air surrounding the pendulums? What's your view or, uh, on that? Yeah, I, there's a lot of hoo ha out there, and that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> and, and, and almost all of it is wrong. Um, right. Uh, first of all, it is not it is not transmitted through air. Right. You could I have actually between the pendulums, I have put a piece of cardboard all the way up to the suspension, all the way down so that there was like a, a, a physical barrier between the two pendulums. No. difference, mm. Right. It's actually it's a transference of en- energy from one pendulum to the other through the suspension. Right. Right. And I mean, so you've heard the story of Brigade discovered it of that. He had a, a, a clock on a wall that was not rigidly fixed and other clocks that were stopped the pendulum started vibrating mm. and then the one that started it off then stopped because it was it was drained of energy and then mm. and the others sometimes restarted the one that was stopped and i've done this myself uh and resonance is really is not the right term i i don't know what the uh, uh, the real good term is i i keep bugging some physicist friends to let's work this out <laughs> Um, but yeah. but really, ra- resonance is a is a is a really nice, cool catchphrase. You know, it's a nice. Sure. It sounds good. But really, what they are is pendulums locked in antiphase. Right. And if they and if they have to be very close to the same length and the same you know, rated to the same period to work. And but what ha- when they're locked in antiphase, any errors one will correct the other. And I've, I've proven that over and over again with the things. So locked in antiphase is, is, pro- is probably the correct scientific definition, but it's kind of a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and it doesn't have anywhere near as much cachet as resonance. Indeed. And resonance comes, I believe it comes from 
uh, electronics. And uh, and the word resonance wasn't used, I believe, friend researched it, was not used until quite late. Uh, I mean, like 1900 and something. Uh, so it wasn't used by Breguet or anybody, but they realized where it was coming from. And basically, normally on a, on a precision clock, you need as a rigid a suspension as is humanly possible mm. to get precision out of it. Whereas in this instance, you needed this, the connection, the, the suspension to be as loose as possible without falling apart, which is what I achieved in, in my double pendulums. And so you get a faster reaction between the pendulums. And I had a weight tray of one pendulum, uh, you know, which is used for fine regulation. And I've, I've had it on the the timing machine, on the, uh, you know, a, 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 a readout on each pendulum. You put one weight on one pendulum, and it immediately has an equal reaction to the second pendulum. Wow. So, And, and, and that's through... Uh, the, the, the physics of the vibrations being transmitted through the pendulum and the suspension. There was recently, as in a few years ago, a paper came out and they declared it was actually, it was acoustic. It was the sound of the tick that made it happen. Well, let me just call that bullshit. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Yeah, <laughs> good. You know I mean? Because it's just, it's, just, it's just crap. And one of the things I've noticed is that it seems that all the people who've written about resonance in clocks are all electrical engineers, not mechanical engineers, and it is not the same phenomena. Yes, because I, I wondered whether they were acoustic engineers, sound engineers, because the way they describe it is very much that you know the the sound vibration. Uh, yes, hmm. and and it, and it's not it because the tick isn't really that loud, at least on my double pendulum. I've never seen another one. Okay. I, I never got to see it, and I tried, and and then eventually I thought, well, I can do this. I don't need I don't need to do that anymore. To hell with it. Um, it's like the double pendulum table clock. Uh, it's in the Patek Philippe Museum in Geneva. Mm. I've been there three times to see that clock, and each time the museum was closed. Oh. <laughs> did did they know you were coming in advance and close it, or <laughs> purely coincidental? No. Well, I, I like to think of that, but no, I don't think so. I, I did just turn up, um, and it was still closed. But since then, I did actually make co contact with the curator of the museum, or he made contact with me. Um, and I sort of have, assuming they're open, I have an open invitation to go, but I don't need to anymore. I just figured it out. In fact, the curator even asked me, he asked me, how the hell did you figure that out? Because there is no technical information on that clock. You know, that's the one and only clock that Jean-Vier built, and there is nothing there. Um, and you've heard me say this before. Is how did you do it? And I look at it, use standard Western engineering logic. Mm -hmm. There's only a finite, a finite number of answers to get where you want to go. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. I mean, your, your can-do attitude is very inspiring, and I hope all the watchmakers and clockmakers or aspirants to that field who are listening I hope it gives them the inspiration that they need because that's, yeah, your, your outlook is amazing. Well, well, think about it. Look, I came from Perth, which is what you might not call a horological hot. <laughs> Maybe then. It, it, it's very hot now. <laughs> Hello to our friend Rob. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but, and the thing is, if I dealt with, with what was, was sound but, but mediocre training, and if, and if I can do something like this, Anybody can, if they wish to, you know, and, and I tell people I've had like 
interested people learn something or another and they thought, oh, old stuff, that's not worthwhile knowing because there's a certain misconception around that nothing happened before <laughs> Rolex. There was nothing. It was a God, bad. no. <laughs> and, you know, and, and there was this guy, his name started with a B around 1800. He made a few things that were okay, but other than that, there was nothing yeah. before Rolex. And, then, and <sighs> but in truth, but in truth, I tell people, look at, so I'll often, I might have had a, you know, antique pocket watch or something there. I said, look at this. They had no electricity. They didn't even have good glasses and the poor guys were had tired eyes. They didn't have today's tools and equipment. What they had was school. If this person did this 200 years, even 100 years ago, but that's only 1920, so that's not so school, but or 200 or 300 years ago, if somebody did this then, it's not impossible for you to do it today. Find out how, mm. and you don't have to. You don't have to make an exact copy of it. You just have to do it your way. And as long as the ends is ends is achieved, the means are justified. Yeah, and it's it's a real connection to your earliest days of training in Perth, isn't it? When you're locked up in the garret upstairs, in, you know, being boiled alive, having to fix something with no parts coming in, where you have to make it. You have to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, had to make it work, and actually, kind of a bare minimum of tools. The the lathe the guy had uh, that had there was a six millimeter lathe, but it was treadle, you know, like a sewing machine with a yes. treadle power on it. Didn't have an electric motor. You had to treadle the damn. Oh, piece. isn't that a nice callback to you know a Breguet style workshop, Abraham Louis Breguet style workshop on the on the Rue de Seine? Yeah, I, yeah. And once, but once you got used to it, I mean, at first it was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and but then once you got used to it, it was actually very useful. You know, very. Uh, it, it was. It wasn't hard to do at all. You just needed to get used to it. Is it because convenient? Is turning a motor on? No, <laughs> but you can always. But you can work on it day or night, electricity or no. Yeah, indeed, yeah, indeed. One other question I wanted to kind of explore is this concept of you know in wine you have this thing of terroir where you know where you make something really makes a difference. I wonder how that translates to kind of the design of your watches, you know, because they, they're very, in some ways, they're very classic with the, the coin edging, the guilloché dials. And in other ways, they're quite modern. I'm thinking of sort of, you know, the, the Walter Truss that you use in the movement design, things like that. To what degree do you think being in California and even naming your models, you know, Presidio, Azure, things like that, does that influence where you are? Does that influence what you make? Uh, yeah, but the influence came from earlier than that, is that when I went back to Perth in 1980 and started to make clocks mm. in earnest, is, I mean, I, I was, I mean, I, I'd made clocks, and I, but I was still early days. But there was nobody else to ask in the entire country. Wow. So I had to reinvent, I had to reinvent the wheel my way, which was, uh, if you wanted to do it, that's what you had to do. It wasn't a matter with like it or not like it. If you wanted, if that's what you wanted to do, this is how you had to go about it. And for a long time, that kind of bugged me. And then I realized is that I was creating the, the clocks at that point in my own style. Whereas if I'd been living in England or Europe, I would have had blinkers put on me and done it the traditional way. And so I was unfettered by tradition. And so I developed my own plus. I mean, I have a bent towards minimalism as well because I don't like. I'm not keen on these watches with like handmade in Switzerland, test twenty eight jewels, tested in six. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and 
uh, adjusted to temperature. And I thought, oh, give me, made out of recycled <laughs> brass. Don't give a shit. Oh, goodness. Uh, wow. You know, uh, so, so I, I, some identification absolutely is needed, but it, somehow there's like just too much stuff and like on there and like and i despise screwed on nameplates i can't stand it you know it, uh, uh, one of the things i look at there's some almost happened to me with the clock if that with a screwed on nameplate somebody takes that off screws their name on it and now they're a great maker oh you're kidding that what do you mean has that happened to one of your or nearly happened to one of your pieces i mean that's outrageous that's outrageous wow yeah but as we know there's opportunists everywhere Oh wow, that is shocking. You know, so, and, and so, but my point is, if it's engraved in the metal, it's indelibly engraved forever. Yeah, yeah, that's true. A true maker's mark. A, a true maker's mark. So, but when it comes to, but that started me off in my own direction, and kind of a, my feeling is, once you go down there and you decide, I kind of like this and I'm comfortable with it, mm, you're probably not going to change unless it's dire necessity. Mm. So. Um, I, I do like the classical look. I'm not real keen on like weird modern stuff, but, but it, it's my taste, you know. It's not that I don't. It's not that I don't admire it or appreciate it. It's just not for me. Sure, aesthetics is aesthetics. Sure, exactly. So, and I kind of like the classical look, which is why I've got the dials and hands I do. And if the case, I like. I've always liked coin edge cases, and the fact that you see so few of them tells you how hard they are to make. Mm. And the first one I saw was a Breguet pocket watch from about 1810. And it was really good. And most modern coin edges leave a lot to be desired if you look at them. Uh, mm. and so, but a, again, uh, I sort of put some more m a modern looks, a different look to the movement. And actually, after, I'm, remind me to tell you about the next movement. Uh, but when it comes to like when the – it seems in – more recent years, say maybe the last 20 or so, uh, before a watch could have a reference or a caliber, and that was the watch. But nowadays they seem to need a name. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I saw the names that are coming out of Switzerland, and they have screwed up Latin names. So what the hell did you not learn at school? <laughs> and so, but I thought, well, I needed to do something. So when I came at the first Presidio, I just, I, in that instance, what I wanted was something that was. It gave you an air of California, mm. and the Presidio is what – I'm sure Sean knows what it is, but the Presidio was like the governing office for the, the Spanish settlers way back when the world was flat. And so they had like – government house is the same sure. sort of thing. The Presidio was sure. government house. That's where, that's where that township, that colony was, mm. was governed from. And so I thought that's a pretty good name, and it has a nice cachet mm. to it, I thought. Um, but then when I came along to do watches, the pocket what we needed another name or something to do with it. And because that the pocket watch Azur was in Tantalum, yes. um, uh, FP Jean had already taken Sovereign mm. Bleu, which was <laughs> yes. uh, a, a stroke of genius. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I wanted something else. So, and because Tantalum has a blue tint to it, I chose Azur, which means blue. And uh, from then I was on sort of onto the, and I came before that was the platinum, and I decided you know, I, because it's a platinum movement, platinum case. Well, what else, right? Yes, indeed. And I may do a gold watch and call it Orium. Oh, very nice, very very nice. I mean, we 
we, we just glanced uh, we just glanced past the platinum. Well, I mean, we should say the platinum watch that you made is the first watch in history with the movement made entirely out of platinum. Just for our listeners who don't know. Yeah. The, the movement itself, it starts off with 120 grams of platinum. Jeez, a loo. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's, it's when you've got it on, you know you've got it on. Yes, um, and hopefully other people don't. <laughs> well, well, platinum is kind of nice because it just looks like boring old steel. Yeah, that, that's quite nice about it. It's understated. It's understated. And uh, a lot of people who like platinum like it for that reason. They either have platinum watches or stainless steel. They don't have gold, or as in yellow gold. Yeah. Uh, or rose. And because it's, you know, unless you really know your stuff, then you're probably not a risk. You know, and the other guys who might be risk just, you know, chrome or steel or something, it doesn't matter. Um, so, but from, from there on, it was then uh, the white came out because the whole watch was just so white. Mm-hmm. That was the name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm working on, and I've developed really the white as far as I can go with that. And it's time to ch- next the next stage in progress. And, and these are progress stages I've actually thought of beforehand. So each one was the Presidio only came about because when I met Joshua, we wanted to do something like, you know, can we work together? You know, when do we understand each other? And I said, well, let's just explain. I had five uh, new soap rod movements and five cases from something that I didn't do. I started and then put aside. Sure. I said, "We've got. Let's make dials for it and hands. Let's and just see how it goes, you know." And so I made five of those. There, that's they're done. Yes. But it was an experiment of you know finding out how to go about things, and it's a learning curve on on both parts. Of course. Uh, and, and and that worked out well. Um, and the white was a this, again a similar thing. Somebody. Somebody came to me and asked, could they make a watch that looks something like that in this price range? I'm sure. Let me think about it for a bit. And we did. And uh, Azura came about because the person asked me, he said, he would like a pocket watch with two barrels in it. Oh, wow. So let me think about that. Mm-hmm. And then, and that's, that's fully made in USA, everything. Oh, the train, balance, dial, case, everything. And so, and and I thought, well, let me think about. It. So I came up with that idea, and of course, the the truss idea is all from Derek Pratt. Mm. You know, it's sort of in, and I hopefully I made that obvious. You know, it's clear, but it was. I saw Derek's uh, one of his pocket watches, especially in the Clockmakers Museum in London. Yeah, the, yeah, it's incredible piece, amazing. And I've I've managed to have that in my grubby paws several times. <laughs> <laughs> well, they wiped it off very nicely before they put it in that display case. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. But doing, and I was, I was always loved that concept. So I thought, I'm, I, I'm doing this for Derek. Mm. And and, so it came, and then it, it turned out I couldn't use a Pratt truss like Derek did because the size was different. But it, uh, an engineering friend showed it to him. He said, "Oh, you've made a Walter truss." <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's really, there's a truss called a Walter truss. It was before the Pratt truss. That is so wonderful. I, I love that story. And, I love that story. And, so, and then that was, there's probably going to be a wristwatch soon made in the same way as Azure pocket watch, but wristwatch size. Not That's something like, a, that was 55 millimeter. Yeah, wow. The movement. Yes, wow. Right, so, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking of ways to, uh, reduce that so that it looks the same just just risk maybe 40 millimeter size but it's not as easy as it sounds trust me uh, 
I, I'm doing, but I'm thinking about before I get to that, what I'm doing is the next progression after the white um, is is called ecru. Okay. Ecru means off-white. Uh, also, ecru also means raw silk. Ah, interesting. Or, or, or the look of raw silk. So it has a kind of a romantic connotation to it, which I kind of like. Uh, so, but it, this will be like a all. Uh, it's a 32 millimeter move. I like big movements. I don't like little movements. Um, and it, it will look, it's a little bit inspired by platinum, a little bit by azure. And I've been, I think I put something on Instagram, a drawing or something a few weeks ago. Oh, but, okay. but I've actually, I, I'm kind of oh, about halfway through the prototype um, on, on doing the thing. And I've sort of, each time I'm doing something, I think of another idea to add in, which I generally do. So this will kind of truly be in-house movement. Oh, wow. Uh, and do you envisage the case in tantalum as well or in platinum or sort of up to the commissioner? You know, because if I had to do a production of 50, I'd probably go nuts. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> 50 the same. Uh, I'd probably be bored stiff after about sure. 10. And that's not what I want to do, and it's not what I want to do for any customer. Sure. Uh, so what happens, somebody, if really, because I make one at a time, mm. I don't make I don't make 50 bits. I don't have the CNC machine knocking out all these things that you more or less now you're committed to use because you put so much uh, resources into it. So someone wants it. Uh, someone's asked for a 42 millimeter case. Sure. Someone wants a 39 millimeter case. Sure. Wow. What would you like? What, you know, what metal would you like? You know, and that's always been my thing. And I think it's again from antique restoration and from Perth of seeing so many different pieces, one after the other, all different is, is I, I, I offer a huge amount of flexibility and I, and I would like each piece to be unique. Mm. Uh, George, George and Derek and Anthony did that same thing. Each piece is unique. It's not, it's not hundreds of pieces all the same. And I understand why that's done and the need for it and, and, and respect it, but it's just not what I want to do. I like to offer something individual and almost always somebody asks for something like, I'm interested in this, but could I have? Yes. <laughs> and it, as long as it can be worked in, I'll do it, you know, to, to personalize it. And I, I, I like that person, that personal touch to it. And if you like, it kind of keeps the creative juices going. Absolutely. I mean, to me, that exemplifies the best in independent watchmaking, in bespoke watchmaking, in the true sort of luxury watchmaking, luxury in the true sense of the word, you know, that you can make, you can realize in, in life what a collector has in their head, which is an incredible skill to, to have. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, actually, I mean, some some years ago, I had a customer from San Jose, Silicon Valley area, mm -hmm. was coming at looking at something, and, and he asked, like, how much would that be? And I think I said, that's about 60000 And he said, I don't want that. <laughs> uh, okay, why not? He says, I've got employees who buy two of those a year. I want something they can't afford. Well, that's a good customer to have. And, and I, I, you know, but but that had never crossed my mind. No. That, 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 he says, I'm paying them. I don't want the same watch they could wear. I want to, I want to wear a watch they can't. And he wasn't being rude or arrogant about it. It was just like a statement of fact. And it's something I had never, ever thought about. So, okay, all right, where do we go now? Let's see what we can do. And 
uh, and again, it's, it's at that level of something else. And occasionally I do something that somebody wants. I can just do this for me and don't repeat it. You know, so, um, yeah, okay. We can we can we can make an arrangement for that as well, and large. But that depends also on how much R and D goes into it. Yeah, of course. And R and D for one watch is exactly the same as for a hundred. Of course. Except you you amortize the costs over a hundred. It makes a hell of a difference. Yeah, I've got absolutely, absolutely. Well, because when when you've done that one watch for that person with that one clock piece, whatever it is, you basically then throw it away, and you have to start from scratch with the new idea. And you might not have a new idea. Well, I, I wondered that. So part of the things, you know, I mean, the level of watchmaking that you do is, is you know, in, in cre- at an incredible high level. You know, that's that's the peak, of, you know, the Mount Everest of thing. What I was wondering is, you know, do you make something because you have an idea that you follow and then you show it to a potential customer? Or, you know, you always have ideas, but they don't. You, you don't make it until somebody actually puts an order in. I just wondered how that works at that level of watchmaking that you do. Uh, it, it's a bit of it's a bit of both. Sometimes I have an idea. Uh, the Wandering Moon was a good example because uh, when I did that last one, the the, the client asked, "We were doing this," and he said, "I said I'd like another complication. Have you got anything in wow. mind?" Well, I did, Lovely. and so that just. That were so I thought I explained it to him how it worked. When I had it finished, I called him on Skype and we went over it together. He said, "Oh, that's how it works." <laughs> so I realized my ex, but he he trusted me in what I was said, but I realized my explanation clearly was not very good. <laughs> but it's also hard when you've got nothing else on the planet to refer it to. Yes, it's hard to be unique when you don't that's right, where you can't direct them to a Wikipedia page or you know or a you know page of a yeah. But but other things, for instance like Azure Pocket Watch, that that guy came and asked me something. The miniature carriage clock that's in Sydney. Yes. That was the same thing. I I'd, I'd known him for some years and he he's a carriage clock collector and he said I would like a true carriage clock but I want something really small. And he gave me some suggestions, and I and he said, "Well, okay, again, let me think about it, because I some rarely come to an instant answer, but think about it and just sort of go away, sit outside in the evening with a single malt and look at this, just <laughs> look let at the, the stars. mind go blank. Yeah, look at the stars. look at the stars, <laughs> and then the answer or suggestion will appear. Wow, yeah, uh, 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 and that, uh, but there are times like when I've just finished something." Uh, I finished uh, the last uh, exhibition Torbion I did. When it was finished and done, I, I, I was done. Normally when I finish something, if you want me to do something tomorrow, it's not going to happen. I'm burned out. Sure. I need a rest. Sure. I need a break from it. You need to sort of you know, use so much energy up and imagination doing that one, that, that project is that you need to revitalize. Yeah, of course. You know, have a break from it, think something else, do something, you know, do something mediocre or mundane or less taxing on your yeah, mental faculties that, exactly. of course. and and then you then other things will gradually pop up like um, the idea of a crew sort of i hadn't thought of it and i was i worked through a few and i thought uh, you know what i'm gonna do this and that's how that comes about but and usually when i, I do drawings and i'm usually within about 95 percent of what i started off with 
And mm. I've seen people do drawings and what they ended up with and where they started from, uh, uh, not in the same place. <laughs> yes. Well, I remember a comment that I think George uh, George Daniels made in one of his uh, videos, I think interviews, where he said, you know, I don't need to draw things. I draw things after they have been made. It's all in my head. I know what I'm doing because I can change things as I move along. So I'm not fixed to an idea that I've drawn. Yeah. And I must be that's exactly what I do. You know, so mm. uh, people ask, well, that's all... The- I, you have to make some drawing, and George did as well. But often, I, yeah, doodling, I, sure. I can often do it on freehand on paper. All you need is a bunch of numbers, mm. a, and with those numbers, you can go from there. And I, I know at times people have asked me something or another. They've asked me something or another, and then, I, or I have an idea like for the, the Azure Pocket. I, I had an instant idea of what I wanted to do mm. and what I wanted it to look like. And now all you had to do was make it, which is what yes. the same as what George said, rather than drawing out something and then slavishly sticking to that. Mm-hmm. And that may work in some instances, but the trouble is you run the risk of if it doesn't work, what are you going to do now? How are you going to fix it? Yeah, indeed. indeed. And, and so you don't have the, I don't think flexibility is available in doing that. So this way it's flexibility. And even when I'm doing something, the next one will be subtly different because I will have found that this works slightly better than that. You know, just minor differences, but still the same thing, but just something you've learned along the way. Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's the handcraftedness of a product. Um, The only other question I had was really an emotional question, uh, which I've asked other makers of, you know, of bespoke things. When you make, when you spend a year or six months or whatever, you know, two inches away from something, particularly a watch movement, which is so fine, you know, when it's ready and you need to deliver it to the new owner, what emotions go through your head as you hand that object over? That's a good question. People have asked it before. For me, it's. I know some people have a problem with this. They can't hand it over. What, what it may not be just anything that they've worked on, whatever they have trouble with it. And for me, I don't have a problem because without you as the client who paid me money to do that, that piece would not exist. So it's mm. yours, not mine. Mm. You, 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 and the, the word commission covers it. You commissioned me to make that, and if you had not done it, it would not exist. Therefore, mm. it's yours. I may have created it at your request, but what I've done is somebody trusted me and had enough faith in me to have to depart with their hard-earned money and however long it took to do it. So when it goes to them, I am, I, I am really, really, uh, I don't want to use a negative term. I, I am always very, very satisfied that that person now has that piece and it's theirs and and they wear it or take it home and put on their shop, whatever they do with it, and and hopefully are, are proud of it. And that that at the moment when I give that piece to the customer and I, I get to watch their face, right? And, mm. and, and that to me is everything. Yes. And, and ex- extremely satisfying. David, so is it is it... Because when you talk about um, working on these pieces and, and sort of, you know, needing a break or being spent. So is it um, uh, sort of a situation where, you know, you've poured you've poured out your effort and your thought and your, um, you know, inspiration and emotion into this piece? And it, it's sort of um, uh, an example of that, that that the customer now now has um, that that you've been able to move on because you've 
you've you've poured it out into that creation you've enjoyed it and it's an expression of that and, and you're ready for something else now um yes yeah uh, if you like in a way I, I i've satisfied that person's uh, aims and goals <laughs> and now it's on to the next thing but I never have any trouble letting it go, and and I'm 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 happy to see people happy. Happy is good. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Doesn't happen often, but happy. Is, I mean, not with you. I mean, just happy is good in the current world. I think you bring yeah, the joy that you bring to the world. Yes, it's it's a very welcome thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and. And I know it doesn't work like everybody for that. I know some people, it's just a, a product. At the end of the day, there it is. You, you know, so what? Thanks, goodbye, you know. But that's, I almost universally end up as like close friends with my clients oh. as opposed to, as opposed to like if you go into your dealership and you buy I don't know, Parmigiani, Heaven forbid a Rolex. Um, <laughs> you, exactly. Heaven forbid a Absolutely. Yeah, I'm uh, so with you there, David. We're in, yeah. we're in good company. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you, the guy, whoever's behind the counter is friendly to you. You're, they're nice. But there's a bit of back and forth. If, if you really don't like the person, you walk out or talk to somebody else. But essentially do that. Once that's done, that's it. It's over. Yes, you know, purely transactional, uh, yes. Yes, it's transactional. Whereas with this sort of things, because it's personal and there's all – and because when something's being made, I do post stuff on Instagram and on other things, but I also send more direct to the to the client as well as we have conversations or I'm doing something, or I'm doing something look, I've seen this, it could be this or it could be that, what would you prefer? So there becomes a bit more intimate contact, uh, you know, be, between – you know, the maker and the client. Mm. And, I mean, I personally like that. I, I know some people are like don't like it, but, but for me that's how it works. And I, and I think it's the way it should be simply because it makes better relations for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, as as you as you're saying these words, I'm glancing down at my wrist where I have my uh, Joshua Shapiro Infinity Series watch on, and that's exactly – what the relation to the friendship that Josh and I forged over the, over the making of that watch. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's very personable and a very likable guy, you know, and, and wants to do what he wants to do, but he also wants to please. There are, there are some who said, this is what I do. Take it or leave it. <laughs> well, and you've seen that as well. I said, well, maybe, you know, it might be if it was great, it was okay, but most of the time it's not that good, so you can leave it really easy. <laughs> yes, well, there, there is that, isn't it? Um, yeah, you did. One of your questions, and I want to make sure we cover this, is you asked about um, uh, training people. Yes. And and <clears throat> we, I've had some spectacular failures Goodness. on that. Uh, over <laughs> Goodness. And on doing things and just... It, it's diff uh, people tell us it's hard to get trainees for anything today yes except maybe computers um, <laughs> and but uh, what and as it happens i actually have i have two two trainee apprentices uh oh, wow. one one is a doctor in idaho um he's going to retire in the next few years he's collected marine chronometers all his life and we got into contact 12, 14 years ago, and nothing happened. And eventually we got in contact again. And um, when he retires, he, he wants to go into making. And he's, he's setting up a complete workshop. 
His name's Peter Doble. He's on Instagram. He posts some recent pictures of setting up his workshop. And, and he, um, it's a bit of a distance, but Skype and FaceTime are pretty useful. And uh, as you know, it's the next best thing to standing over someone's shoulder. Um, and, and he's showing good progress. And the other one is a, a young woman. Um, she lives up in the Bay Area, uh, Brianna. And she, Paul was her teacher at Wasp in Florida. Oh, it's small, such a small world, isn't it? And I was some, a few years ago, I was in West Hollywood and having, a, oh, there's the Jean shop over there. I want to go and have a look. So walked in and had a look, um, walking in in my scruffiest best. Uh, and Well, you're in California, that's allowed. You can't judge people. You can't judge net worth <laughs> by, by clothing. Not a hope in hell, not a chance. Um, <laughs> Which is cool. Um, and so we walked in, so, so, and uh, we just got to talking about some things. And the guy said, Oh, they said, uh, We're having a, a watch class here next uh, on the weekend. I think it might have been Thursday or Friday. Uh, we're having this. And I said, And I sort of said, Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was inviting you to participate. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I hadn't heard of it. And sure. I said, Well, what? Uh, who is going to teach this watch class because there's idiots out there and the guys who are thinking they're teaching shouldn't be teaching uh, anyway so it turned out it was to do with that she explained it was to do with the hsny yes. and then brianna was turning up and so i got in contact she came down the next week and uh, and and again it's turned out that she wants to do more than just service work mm. and there, you know some people are quite happy doing service work i would say europe is full of them um and, you know, you go to work, you know, nine to five, collect your paycheck, go home. Sure. It's a job. And and, and the world needs that as well. But mm. she wanted to get past that. So we got along. Let's see. And there's a number of questions I asked as whether the, the person's even worth talking to. Mm-hmm. And she answered that and did some other things. So, so she comes down at times uh, and stays here for a few days and uh, work on things. Part of it, she's doing some getting into some antique restoration work because I wanted to see she, some things, just different things. Sure. And she's seen, already seen some. She said she had no idea that something like this was done in like 1790. Wow. Yes. And, and because that's not what they teach you at school. Uh, watch me. And indeed, it's not watchmaking school's job to teach you that. You know, it's their job to train you for servicing modern watches. Of course. Is, of course. And, and but she's got and she wants to get into making as well and she's got real props she, she's really good you know you you can tell students who know what they're listening to you talk to them and they soak it up like sponges and ask sensible questions not stupid smart ass questions <laughs> uh, yeah well, well and that's why I'm, it makes me it makes me really happy to hear that not that you ask smart questions i mean that's wonderful as well um yeah that that transmission of knowledge um yeah i'm just so pleased and yeah it's wonderful um there does seem to be a bit of a renaissance i feel of kind of watchmaking in the states certainly around california and oregon you know i'm thinking of yourself there's josh shapiro um keaton myricks in oregon dan spitz uh, Darren Tiffany was spoke with recently. I was spoke with Josh on the show recently as well. Um, it's probably others I'm forgetting. Um, it's it's a yeah, it's, it's this real groundswell of watchmaking happening in the US, which is wonderful. Yeah, and it seems mostly to be based in California. It does seem to, su- yeah, which surprises me because the really well, LA has collectors, 
but not the same as Silicon Valley in the, in San Francisco area. Mm. And and again, it's not the same as in, say, New York, which is probably the center in the country. Um, but strange, I, I asked uh, Nick Manousis when I was in New mm. York about, like, why, you know, where are the, the local guys who are making watches? You know, where I, 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 I can't find any, but you know, that's not, maybe I'm just not looking in the right spot. And he said, partially he said, there's none in New York. It's simply too expensive. And, you know, you need a, you know, bench space and machines oh, and equipment. Of course. Yes, you of know? Course. And he said, he said, they live like 800 square feet and it's half a million dollars. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So, so you can't be in Manhattan. I thought, okay, I never thought about that. That makes sense. Well, in Cali, actually a question about that. We were out with uh, Kieran. I think, you know, Kieran Shikai, don't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. He was on the show. Yeah, he was a guest on the show a few a few yeah. months ago. And I was talk- we were out at dinner, uh, like half dozen of us, and they were talking about cars or something or another, and I, I, whatever it was that came up. And they said, and they said something. I said, well, I've got four cars. And they said, of course you do. You live in California. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. You you don't have to stack them one on top of each other. <laughs> the other. That's right. Precisely. Where whereas whereas in New York, even. Well, we were walking around, and he said, "This is place here." And I said, "Well, okay, we're talking about the, you know, the older area that was now fashionable." And I said, "Okay, so we buy the penthouse for ten million dollars. So where do I park the Bentley?" He said, "You don't." <laughs> he said, "You get a taxi." <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, and I, I, well, it's fascinating. I yeah. never thought, fascinating. Yeah, because parking's at an unbelievable premium. He said, but he said most of the cars you see out here are either taxis, Ubers, or Lyfts, or private taxis." And I thought, huh, I yes. never realized that. Um, so hence, it has the same to do with other guys. But I would like to think the upstart in California is because of me, because 20 years ago, there was nothing. But I, yes. I mean, I've been looking to try and help. And Dan Spitz is on the East Coast. He's in North Carolina or somewhere like that. I think something so. Like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, but the West Coast seems to uh, come in. Keaton, I've, I've met him and know him. He, he, he's come along by himself doing his own really beautiful work. And and I've, I've helped Joshua. I'm trying to help the others come along as well, wherever I can. Because, you know, and, and so far we're getting to make good progress and all of us are coming forward with uh, and new ideas and new watches. Yeah, which is which is fantastic. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, the other person we should probably credit uh, is Tim Jackson at Independent in Time, you know, supporting the Indies yeah. for a number of years, for a long time as well, which is such a fantastic thing. Yeah, Tim is almost unique in that, uh, in that, that in, in understanding it and being so supporting of the Independents. So I never really met him until four or five years ago. I think we corresponded mm. a few times, but because I was into clocks and he was into watches, there was there yes. really wasn't any common territory. But he, he was here a couple of weeks ago. You know, he get on well. He's, he's a really, like, um, I, I, I sponsored him for Freeman of the company. Oh, yeah. So, so he and I joined, yes. Yeah, so he and I joined at the same time. So it was 2019. So that's what I met him in London where we were both becoming Freeman of, yeah. of, the, of the company. So, yeah, lovely guy. Such yeah. a wonderful yeah, guy. Yeah, I, I couldn't make that meeting. I don't remember what happened because something. I, I was liveryman the year before. And, yes. Um, and hope I had booked to go this year. Well, of course, I cancelled that in March, obviously. Um, 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, but, of course. In, but in, just in case, you know, I have already booked for next year. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm hoping to do the book launch there. I, well, I hope uh, to see you there as well oh, for the Michaelmas dinner. The, the book. <laughs> we'll see how we go. The book launch, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> Maybe the year after. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, none at all. Let's have, well, look. As we start to sort of, I mean, you're a fascinating man. I'm sure, Sean, we we can talk at Euro for hours and hours. Um, just as we start to wrap up, one of the things I want to say is, how do our listeners who are listening now, being very inspired, how do they find you? How do they get in touch to talk about commissions and things that you're up to? Okay. What's the best way for them to find you? Um, I have a website, davidwalter.com. It's it's being worked on. It's it's horribly out of date because it kept getting delayed. Well, I'm doing this. Let's wait till we get this done, and I'm, I'm finished. That. Well, let's wait till we sure. get the next thing. But, but <laughs> nevertheless, it's it, it still works, and you can still contact me from it. Um, I I post most mostly on Instagram, which is David E. Walter, and uh, I post a little bit on Facebook. But not much. Don't worry about Twitter. So, but through uh, Instagram, I tend to, it's 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 just easy to do it, and yeah, and it's easy to keep up to date with. So I, I put most of the things what I'm doing on there. Uh, don't necessarily expose all private details, but sure. Uh, but I can be yes. contacted through you know private message on that. Uh, sometimes um, there's a couple of forums I look at, but I they're kind of not the same thing because. As you've noticed with the forums, the all the watchmakers are noticeably absent. Yes, yes, indeed. And and it's because you end up being not inundated, but you get like stupid questions or stupid comments, and like I just haven't got time for this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, yeah. No website and Instagram definitely the way to go. Yes, and, and that that you know someone actually had to drag me kicking and screaming in, in into Instagram, and they eventually just told me to shut up and do it. So I did, but it's actually worked out. It's enjoyable. Plus, I get to sort of see and follow other people's things. Um, plus, I can put things on there, a, a mix of things, which, as you've seen, you know, uh, one of the things I go some, I'm, I'm a sucker for smoked salmon. I, I know it's terrible, but if there's smoke. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> smoked salmon. I tell you what goes good with, with smoked salmon, uh, Lafroig. Single malt. Oh, that's that's good to know. Yeah, that's good to know. Well, we'll definitely have to when we can travel. I definitely have to travel up to see you, and yeah, we'll definitely do that. Cool. Okay. And of course, I, uh, on my, on my phone number, which is on on the website. Of course, I'm on WhatsApp as well. So, WhatsApp is another one of the Absolutely. super fortunate things where we can call anybody anywhere at the right price. Yes, uh, hopefully at the right time. So just people, if you do that, just make sure you check. Well, <laughs> get a world time, get a world time, a watch a clock uh, before uh, you dial that number. Yeah, haven't haven't moved around like like Sean. You almost have a second sense of of roughly what time it is somewhere else. Yeah, you have to. Uh, plenty of places you have to run errands and make phone calls. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, one of the things we do also before we sort of wrap up is uh, we like to sort of expand our horizons or, you know, sort of learn more about things. So what we often ask ourselves and our guests is if there's anybody they can recommend as either people to follow on Instagram or some, you know, cultural touch points for them to learn books, videos, things like that. Um, so I might throw it to Sean first, um, see if he's got anybody or anything he'd recommend. Yeah, um, I'm going to do something a bit different today. I'm going to do a hashtag. So I'm just going to recommend uh, Small Watch, the hashtag on Instagram. 
I, I think my main focus or trying to inspire people is just to uh, you know, discover more vintage watches in, in smaller sizes. I, I found myself lately more so wearing watches around, you know, 32, 33, 34 uh, millimeter sizes wow. where, you know, a lot of people shy away from those because they think, you know, this is a dress watch or, you know, it's not, you know, a men's size or whatnot, where <laughs> I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, real quality. And I, I love how, you know, the the effort and, and and like david said you know these are watches coming from periods where people were wearing them as every day and and they were focused they're an effort of the watchmaker more so than um uh, accountant or a, <laughs> or a salesperson so yeah so i'm i'm enjoying that so you know check out that hashtag and it's 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 not always going to be you know the most amazing stuff every day but you might you know find something interesting and 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 see it on someone else's wrist and say you know I might like that too. Fantastic. That's very cool. Very cool. Uh, what about you, David? Is there anybody, anything you'd recommend? Um, Putting you on the spot. Yeah. I hadn't, well, uh, uh, on Instagram is Arta Akhmeyev, which we've already talked oh, yes. about. His, his engraving and his enamel works on his watches are outstanding. It's really yes. good. I, I, I see he has a good career ahead of him. Um, there's also his sister, which is, Dinara Akmeyev, she's still in Moscow, but she does some exquisite drawing. She did that drawing for me of the Azula pocket watch. Yeah, and of the white, I think as well. I think she did a. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The guy who got the the man who got that first white, um, he saw the drawing and then asked, "Can I get one?" So sure, just you know, talk direct to Dinara. Yeah. I'm going to get her to do a drawing for me of the uh, the Torbion, the exhibition Torbion. I'm trying to think. There's a, a Tommy Jobson yes. in in London, in UK is worth following. He's, he's in clocks, not watches. But I perceive this is a. I'm guessing he's early thirties. Uh, this is a, this is a guy with a good career ahead of him. Yeah, he's a very cool account for sure. Great. I mean, there's some really good recommendations, and and you're right. I mean, Artur is yeah, it's fantastic, cross man. He did the engraving on 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 my uh, Shapiro Infinity series as well. Um, yeah, and it's just great that there's a local outlet, you know, the watchmaking clockmakers for to utilize his skills. Because yeah, because you're right. I mean, his skill is phenomenal, and it's just great that yeah, yeah. I, yeah I've got him to do all by engraving. Because when I was first here 20 years ago, there wasn't a good engraver. Mm. There had been in the past, but there's all been and gone. And nowadays, it was just mechanical, you know, machine engraving, which is awful. Um, yes, and I would I would send stuff to England to have it engraved. Yeah, wow. And then for and then for a long time I didn't need it, and then Arta turned up, and I thought, ah, oh, engraving, cool, we can use this, and and I do. Uh, the that last tourbillon I did, the entire dial was hand engraved. He did it. Amazing, yeah, incredible, right? Incredible. It, it wasn't it wasn't etched or any or, or or laser cut. He did the whole thing. Yeah, all all the numerals, all the lettering, and lettering. Uh, engraving as scrolls and stuff is easy, and you often see it on gun stocks, for yes. instance. Um, but lettering is extremely difficult to do. Mm. Yes, and he does a great job at it. So I've already I've already got some more things in mind for him to do on me. Very cool. No, f- phenomenal. No, that's that's beautiful. Uh, and the last person I'll I'll recommend um, an account on Instagram, Anthony Gray Clocks. 
the grey with an oh, yeah. Uh, and Tony yep. is lovely. So I met Tony in London as part of that worshipful company of clockmakers. And, yeah, it, um, he's a fantastic clockmaker, clock repairer, clock restorer. Um, his Instagram account's always worth following because there's some incredible pieces that he gets to work on. And he's just a lovely chap as well. So Yes. Yeah, no, I, I do follow him. He's, he's nice pieces. I'm always a sucker for nice pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. Are we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, look, well, look David, uh, I just wanted to sort of thank you for joining us today, today for this episode and, you know, for being so candid and open to about sharing your experiences. I think it's been a great and sort of very inspirational conversation. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Actually, it's been good from my side because I like to get out there that if somebody wants to do something, they can, and they're not, they're not alone. And they can contact uh, me, you, whoever, you know, for some guidance and direction if they if they want, you know. But point is, it's there, and and this is superb in help spreading the word. Yeah, it's really inspirational. Your can-do attitude, I, I think, what you've accomplished, and and that from the background that you've had, just you know, approaching everything, just trying to figure out, trying to problem solve. Um, I, I think that's a really good example. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And in sort of preparing for this conversation, I would thinking of the best way to describe it, whether it would be a maker of extraordinary things or an extraordinary maker of things. And I think you're both. I think you're an extraordinary maker of extraordinary things. And I can't think of a <laughs> higher compliment than that. that. That's indeed complimentary. Thank you very much. Yeah, that, so, some, I sometimes have written uh, horologist extraordinaire. Yep. Think if anyone's going to deserve it, that's you. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you've summed it up. But yes, there's no point in being mediocre. We already have too much of that. <laughs> and on that note, um, what we might do is finally, we, what we all say is, you know, with Fifth Wrist, uh, we set this up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts. So if anybody wants to join us, contribute, write reviews, or even come on the podcast for a conversation, please get in touch. Uh, follow Fifth Wrist on Facebook and Instagram or on our website at fifthwrist.com. Uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. Helps us spread the word. We like the feedback as well. Uh, follow me. I'm at Times Roman AU. My co-host Sean is at The Book Watcher. And our guest David Walter is at David E. Walter. Thanks for joining us today and stay on time. <laughs>